pay some money, that's going to change everything, right? Think about it. It's crazy. Somehow, that's exactly what it is. Somehow, you're going to offset your carbon, the carbon credit. You see, that tells us exactly what this is all about and where it's all heading. And somehow, if you just, you know, if you just want to clear your conscience, just pay. It doesn't matter. It still doesn't change the dynamics, but at least you feel better because you paid a carbon credit. Somehow that, that makes it all, everyone feel better. And uh, it really is crazy in what's going on around us. But uh, anyways, enough of that. Let's turn to the Word of God, Psalm 25. Thank God for His Word. And so... So um, a couple of weeks ago, you, for those that were present, you'll recall that um, I started uh, speaking from Psalm 25, and so I want to continue on with that um, this morning. So what we'll do first up is um, we'll read it in just a moment, but just to kind of reflect before we do read. Um, the couple of things that we did point out as we considered um, especially the first seven verses there was we looked at David's faith, you may recall. David's faith in that, in verse 1, it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O God, I trust in you. So we know that <coughs> David has a strong trust and faith in God and that's what's moved him in light of the, the, the pain and the suffering uh, that he's enduring in his own life to lift up his voice to God, knowing that God is uh, um, uh, there. So that's the issue of faith. We know that uh, we saw also David's prayer. Remember in verse uh, 4, Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. And so we, we went into that, looked a little bit more detailed at that in the scripture. And also we looked at God's forgiveness because in verses uh, 6 and 7 we find a reference to forgive me from the sins of my youth. And also we looked at verse 11 briefly where he makes reference uh, for uh, a great sin, a great iniquity in his life, which we can only equate to that which being Bathsheba and uh, the sin of Uriah there and his killing. And so... But yet we're highlighting his faith, we're highlighting the, the prayer that David's prayed and we're highlighting the forgiveness of God and that's kind of where we're at. We're going to look further and deeper into the psalm uh, today and also again when we come together. But let's read it together and uh, we'll move forward in some of these things. Let's look at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed, let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of, of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his covenant, 
and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity or at ease, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. For the eyes are, or my eyes are, sorry, my eyes are uh, ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged, bring me out of my distresses. Look at my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Uh, uh, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So here we pick up David. And uh, in, his, uh, in his writing here, and we'll, I would try and draw your attention firstly to verse 7 and just the, the few words there at the end of verse 7 where David makes reference uh, and he, he says, uh, uh, according to your mercy, remember me. And then he says these words, for your goodness sake, O Lord. Now think about that, for your goodness sake, O Lord. You know, when we, when we think about the nature of God, when we think about the character of God and His glorious attributes, one of the things that we begin to realize is the goodness of God that is exclusive only to God in the true sense. And so we find uh, in the world around us, we know how people take the name of the Lord in vain. We see that all around, you know, the name of Jesus that is used as a cuss word and for all of those things. But another thing that you'll find is that some people, and, and in, in the moment, they'll say, oh, for goodness sake. Have you heard that? That is another form of taking God's name in vain. Because when we say that, we're virtually, we are taking that which, for, uh, for your goodness sake, O oh Lord, this is something, again, that is attributed to, uh, the, to God himself exclusively. So when used in that manner, it is, uh, it is using the Lord's name in vain. And so again, we see that. But you see, in reality, there's only one that is good. Amen? There's only one. Jesus said there's only one that is good. That is, uh, that is uh, uh, God, obviously Christ himself in the, in the incarnation, but he came to glorify the Father. And so there's only one that is good. And David knew that. And so when we, know, when we search the scriptures, we find that there is, uh, outside of God, there is none that is good. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? Each man is good to proclaim their own goodness. But who can find a faithful man? You see, we don't come into this category. We look at humanity and we look at the humanism and we look at the goodness of, uh, uh, that around that man can do. And in a certain sense, uh, they can do good. But when it comes to the goodness of God, the, 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 the nature of God, the perfection of God, the Bible makes it clear there is none good. No, not one. In, and that's the God's indictment against all of humanity. So, uh, so we cannot use that phrase in this sense when we talk about the goodness of men. Because if we talk about the goodness of men, we can only talk of it in the context of the goodness of God. And in that context, there's no goodness at all. That's what the scripture teaches us. 
And so David says, uh, and he's appealing to the goodness of God, for your goodness sake, O Lord. And, uh, uh, and notice the word sake, meaning on, on account of who you are, on account of your goodness. And the word goodness there speaks of the best. And God is the best. God has our best interests at heart. God gives us the best. Amen? And so we are partakers of his goodness. And so David is wanting to lay a hold of that according to your mercy and for your goodness sake, O Lord. God is good, which is exactly what he says in verse 8. Have a look at it. He makes a declaration. Good and upright is the Lord. And this is a statement concerning the character of God. Not only is he as good as we have just established, but the scripture uses that he is upright. And that word upright means that he is straight. He is even. And this is again in contrast to the human race and all of mankind in which the Bible tells us that we are crooked. Paul says in Philippians, be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. Because we are, that word crooked means we are warped. And we are warped, amen? All of mankind has that sinful nature that warps us all, that can't put us into that category. So when we say good and upright, again, it is only exclusive to God. Man does not attain to that degree of the goodness of God and the uprightness of God. In actual, uh, the word in the Greek is skolos, which is where we get the, uh, the English word scoliosis, you know, with the spine. It's twisted. And all man is twisted in our nature. But not God. And our confidence this morning is in the nature of God. And notice, David says in verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore... Note that word, therefore. When you see therefore, you've got to know what it's there for, right? And so it's therefore to tell us something about who God is and in light of who God is, therefore he teaches, what does it say? Sinners. Sinners in the way. God is good and we are the polar opposite. And that word sinner literally in the Hebrew means a, a criminal, a transgressor. And so one that is accounted as guilty, and clearly that is the state of all humanity, as reiterated by Paul in Romans, we're all guilty before God. And so no one, uh, and so this is the position, that all men are sinners, and this is what the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God is good, therefore he teaches sinners. Oh, thank God for that. Because where will we be without the goodness of God is exactly what is we're identifying here. He teaches sinners. He doesn't teach good people. Amen? <laughs> if you think you're good, then you don't qualify for, uh, to receive his goodness. He teaches sinners. But the truth is, is that we live in a world that men don't like to see themselves in this light. And even in the church today, in the, in the modern church uh, that we live in, even this term sinners is considered a dirty word. 
not to be used because we want to, we don't want, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. But you see, we must use the words that Scripture uses, and sinners is a perfect, legitimate scriptural word for us to use this morning. And it's true that we don't really, until we understand that we are sinners, that we are evil and how wicked that we are in our hearts, that we can then begin to reflect upon the goodness of God. Think about it. This whole issue of God is good, therefore he teaches sinners in the way, is really the essence of the gospel. That is what we find exactly in the book of Romans as Paul is outlining for us. And so, but it incorporates uh, uh, even the words of Jesus himself when he, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous or good people, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Sinners. Those that have transgressed the law of God. And it was Paul the Apostle himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and he said these words, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save, not good men, sinners of whom I'm the chief. That's Paul the Apostle. And so we begin to see that this, the essence of David's words here in the psalm capture for us the, the whole nature of the Bible, the whole nature of the gospel, the whole nature of God, the whole nature of man. God is good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, because of his goodness, he teaches sinners in the way. And that's why I, I hate when I hear deliberately excluded from from any discussion or proclamation of the gospel, the word sin and sinners. It's something that has been deliberately removed from the vocabulary of the modern church. I tell you, that's the truth. I know it's not everywhere, but it's happening. And so, but the truth, as I've said, is until we know how bad we really are, we cannot really appreciate how good God is. And that's the essence. And this is what David is capturing for us in the psalm. David knew how bad he was. It's, he's referencing to it right throughout the psalm, but yet at the same time, on one hand, he's, he's, he's talking about the fact that he's a sinner, but at the other hand, he's talking about the goodness and character of God. And that, and that, is, that summarizes uh, uh, everything up for us. And so David knew how good God was, so he was able to boast and speak of the goodness of God, not with an arrogance, not as though he deserved it. He knew that he didn't, but he knew who God was and and his nature. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. And that's the whole reason why we came to Jesus, amen? Because Jesus showed us the way to the cross. He showed us the way to forgiveness, He showed us the way to experience God's love and forgiveness in our lives. And we were taught by the Spirit of God, drawn by the Spirit of God. And even then we came to Calvary. And as we we journey in the Christian life, yet again, we, 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 we operate on the same principle. 
Praise the Lord. Now, note verse 9, where (coughs) David refers to the humble he teaches his way, or the humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. And this is important because, again, um, uh, uh, he teaches sinners in the way, but a sinner must know that they are a sinner. A sinner must be humbled under the mighty hand of God. The Christian must walk humbly before his God. Because we know the scriptures and they are clear uh, over and over where it tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so humility is a characteristic that must be evident, manifest in our lives. If we are going to receive of the goodness of God and we are going to receive from his faithfulness and his loving kindness, then we have to be humble before him. It's imperative. It's conditional. The humble speaks of the lowly, the broken ones before the Lord. And I was thinking about this, and in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, the Bible says, On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and one who trembles at my word. One who is poor, of a poor and contrite spirit. What's God saying? As I will look upon that one that is broken, that one that is humbled before me they will receive of my goodness. But the proud and the arrogant and the self-righteous, no, they'll get nothing. And so we see again this, this principle of Scripture. Him will I guide, him will I teach. But so many are proud and unteachable before the Lord. And so the, the, the humble is, is, are those who he guides. The humble are those that he teaches his way. And humility must be a characteristic that we manifest before the Lord. We must keep ourselves humble before the Lord. Amen? Because we can be humble for a moment, but our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then, oh, the things that can manifest in our heart and that can spoil. And so we always consistently have to humble ourselves, so to speak, don't we? Before God. But note verse 10 now. It says, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Now think about that. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Now notice here, mercy and truth. The two are associated together and for good reason. In Psalm Uh, 85 verse 10, it says, mercy and truth have met together. You can have truth without mercy, and as one man said, the truth kills. (laughs) The truth is that we all should die. But when truth and mercy are mingled together and they meet, amen, we are recipients of the goodness and grace of God. And they have met together because the Bible tells us in John's gospel that that, uh, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does it say after that? That the law came through Moses. What does the law do? 
The law justifies no man. The law chases us, it slays us, it condemns us, it makes us guilty before God. The law doesn't give us any hope. It's truth, but the truth kills. And it slays us before God. And so what do we We need grace. And so grace, mercy and truth, when they meet together, amen, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And thank God that we have received of that grace. The humble, all the paths of the Lord's are mercy and truth. Thank God, because in the Christian life, again, we venture into various things and we too can fall into various sin. And and at any moment, God could just zap us. But again, we find the mercy of God that we, that triumphs. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is, and mercy is that which we have and continually receive from the Lord. You see, it must be pointed out in verse 10 that all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimony. So there is a conditional aspect because we cannot expect to be blessed of God. We can't expect to receive of his mercy if we are walking in a disobedience, if we are walking in pride and arrogance and known sin in which we are not turning away and walking in obedience to God. These things will, 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 will cause us not to have and receive and prosper and be blessed in the Lord. They will, there will be consequences that are associated with these things. And so the condition is, uh, is that all the, the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Thank God that when we, when we do humble ourselves and we come back to the cross, because that's always the centrality for the Christian, is that we come back and we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, uh, forgive me, and, we bro- and we're broken before God, then we mercy and truth meet together yet again for us. Praise the Lord. But we must walk with an intent that says, I'm going to keep uh, uh, his covenant. I'm going to walk in obedience to his word. And it's then that we will continue to receive and have his blessings in our lives. You see, we can't walk in a manner that is proud and disobedient. And uh, James, in his epistle, when he writes... He makes it clear and he talks about, uh, in James chapter 4, he talks about uh, the spirit of worldliness and he calls them adulterers and adulteresses and and, uh, they are walking in pride and arrogance, disobedience and sin before God and they are unrepentant, they're they're not humble before the Lord. And so, so what does James say? He says to them, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. And he speaks in a manner that are very, very harsh words for New Testament language. But why is he speaking in this way? Well, there's a few reasons for the spirit that dwells in us yearns jealously for us because God, we are his and he wants us to walk in obedience to him. But secondly, he says these words, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And so you can see, even in the Christian life, uh, these are things that play themselves out in the hearts of individuals. 
And this is what James is teaching us. And so we must seek to keep his covenant and then become recipients of his mercy. Isn't it interesting, right? Because look at verse 11. David is speaking about God, he's good and he's upright. Therefore he teaches sinners in the way. And he talks about the humble. And in verse 11, it's like you can have a sense that he's, he's talking, in, in talking about uh, God's goodness, in talking about humility, it's like his own conscience is pricked. It's like because he's, he's stating these facts. And then he says, and it, he just reverts in verse 11, if he says, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And so you get a sense here that David is, uh, in speaking of God, he is, he is mindful of his need to humble himself before the Lord. Because he has a conscious, uh, uh, he's conscious of sin in his life and he refers to it as great sin. And so it was. But still he understood the character and nature of God, which he was, uh, he was uh, uh, quick to, uh, when I say quick, he was mindful to, to bring forth and to the forefront, but in saying that he was ever mindful of himself. And, he's, and, and, he, and you get a sense of that. So right here you see that David is humbling himself in verse 11 under God's hand, understanding the need for humility. You know what struck David's heart in verse 11? The fear of God comes upon him right there. You get that's you know he's referring to uh, the paths of the Lord mercy and truth and the goodness of God and he talks about his sin and you can just get a sense that there's the fear of God is present in his heart and for so it is because look at the next verse verse twelve who is the man that fears the Lord who is the man that fears the Lord he so declares. And it's a question that we must ask, all, all of us must ask ourselves. And, when we, and I think it's important maybe just for a moment that we dwell for a while on the fear of God because it is so critical to this psalm and to the covenant of God and to all that relates to the blessing of God in our lives. Because look at, the, uh, look at verse 14. It says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And, uh, to, to, and he will show them his covenant. Now I want to go into greater detail of that particular verse next time we come into the word of God. But I want to focus for a moment on the necessity for the fear of the Lord and how critical it is in the life of the believer. Because the scripture is making it clear. Who is the man who fears the Lord, says David? Him shall he teach in the way that he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And so there's a strong emphasis on the fear of God. And so let's think about that for a moment. Let's ponder the fear of God, because really when you think about it, we've already referred to James when he addresses uh, the assembly and the, the believers there. What's he trying to do? He's trying to str strike fear, the fear of God into their hearts. Because the fear of God is, uh, is, is, is foundational. The fear of God is a critical component to all of us. And we find this, and, uh, and uh, the Scriptures emphasize it from beginning to end throughout the Bible. But in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the Scripture says, The fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the, is, is the critical component. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honour and life. Now think about that because this is exactly what David's talking about, humility and fear, isn't he? And the scripture reiterates it in the, in the book of Proverbs, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honour and life. And look at those preceding verses in verse 13. Uh, it talks about uh, the, 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 the riches and the blessings that come to us when we walk in this manner before the Lord. Humility and fear is what is characterising David as he writes this particular psalm. And as I've said, it's a fundamental ingredient in the Christian life. Can we, uh, you don't have to turn there, it's up to you, but, <clears throat> but in Exodus, and I want to just illustrate it quickly, because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, when uh, the children of Israel there at, uh, uh, at the mountain and Moses has received the, um, the stones and the Ten Commandments from God, and it's interesting what happens here because uh, there's, a, there's thunder and there's lightning. They're under strict instructions that they're not allowed to go to um, touch the mountain or the edge of the mountain. Otherwise, they will die. And so the, the whole, the whole um, episode that, uh, that's unfolding here is one that is, is awesome to behold. So much so that as the children of Israel are standing uh, in the distance and observing what's going on up on the mountain and the thunder and the lightnings and the presence of God is manifest and, and just the awesomeness of the moment, they are overcome with fear. And it's interesting because in verse 20, Moses responds to them and he said to the people, do not fear. Now the people were crippled, they were scared. Right? They got really scared when they saw what they saw. But he says, For God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near. You see, in other words, uh, uh, as again, the fear of the Lord is a reverence of God. It's a fear in which we fear him because he is God. And, and it incorporates the fact that uh, uh, he is a righteous God, he's a holy God, he's a God of justice, and so we understand all the implications of that. But it's interesting because the fear of God was what God wanted to put in their hearts. And that as they would go forward, they would walk in the fear of the Lord. And what is it that you find as you read the Old Testament? Were they true to this? Nope. And yet we find, though, in the New Testament, God sets forth the same principle. Because, again, you have the birthing of the church uh, 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 in the day of Pentecost, and then you have um, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you know the story in which they conspire together to lie and give the impression that they are giving more than they really are. And so the Bible says that Peter identifies this as through the, the, the Spirit of God. And he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then you know the story. They both are judged and both fall down dead. This is the New Testament. And so what does the Bible say? Directly after that it says, so great fear came upon all the people. 
I believe that it was God's intent to put fear in their hearts. In the same way he put fear into the children of Israel, he was putting the fear of God into the, 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 the church. And so great fear came upon them. And the Bible says is that they esteemed the apostles so, so highly that, they, that they, you know, there wasn't a familiarity. Hey, Pete. Hey, come here, Pete. You know, hey, Jojo, Johnny, Johnny. <laughs> now, they esteemed the apostles that much that they wouldn't even go near them. And, because they, and, and the Bible says there was many signs and wonders that were accomplished in an atmosphere of the fear of God that was present amongst them. And again, you find in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, what does it say? And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were edified. And so the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that is important because it's not just we're just walking in fear, so to speak. Don't get misunderstand me. I'm talking about a, such a holy reverence for God that in, when we walk in a disposition of reverence <coughs> and respect of and in the fear of the Lord, the result of that is not that we're crippled by fear. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. And we walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit that comes in our hearts as a result of that. So we don't live in fear. We live in confidence. We live in assurance. We live in the fullness of his love and so forth. But again, I'm highlighting who is the man who fears the Lord? This is what the scripture is asking. The problem always arises for all of us when there is no fear of God. In Psalm 36, verse 1, it says there, speaking of the world, it says, or even of those around them, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And where do we find those words reiterated? Again, in Romans chapter 3, in Paul's indictment, and God brings an indictment against all of humanity. And what is it? That there is no fear of God before their eyes you know the in the world we live in now everyone's fearing mother earth everyone's fearing climate change there is a spirit of fear that's coming upon this world that we live in and yet if, if, if we fear god we don't need to fear anything else amen because the fear of the lord and the comfort of the holy spirit we have the peace of god that rules in our heart whatever happens so let it be come lord jesus but again Remember we quoted before from Isaiah 66, verse 2. It says, On this one whom I, will I look, on him who has a, uh, is sort of poor in spirit and of a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. See the ingredient of fear. Humility and fear. Humility and fear before the Lord. And this is what the psalm is bringing to our attention. Again, the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean. It is pure. And as I think about David for a moment, in, as he wrote this psalm, and in verse 11, as he talks about the attributes of God in those previous verses, and uh, he is uh, then quickened in his conscience from his own sin, and he, 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 he uh, pleads for God's forgiveness. And then we see the fear of God that is manifesting in his own heart, and he speaks about this particular fear. But you see, the, the, what we learn from this is David at various points in his life didn't always walk in the fear of the Lord. And I think we can look at David's life and say, you know what, I have done likewise. 
in some way, in one, some shape, in some form. And David, in his sin, obviously, with uh, Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, and not only that, then he was self-righteous about it, wasn't he? And uh, when Nathan the prophet comes to him and gives him the, uh, the, the whole uh, a story uh, about the lamb and so forth, and, and, um, and David is outraged with indignation, righteous indignation. Who could do such a thing? Let him be killed. You're the man, David. You're the man. You see, I think the fear of God got him right then. You're the man. <laughs> and sometimes that's what we like because let's be honest, we deceive ourselves, church, don't we? And it's not until somehow God gets our attention and through some circumstance that the fear of God comes smack in the face. And it's like we humble ourselves fresh again. We come back to the cross and say, Lord, give me mercy. And we plead just as, as David did. And that's why it is important for us to understand that if we, uh, uh, as David failed, we will fail. We have failed, I'm sure. We can relate to this in one way, shape or form. But you see, the beauty for the Christian is we always have repentance. And that's exactly what James was trying to draw when he wrote. And think about it, Paul the Apostle, when he wrote Corinthians and he dealt with some issues of sin within the church and talked about some church discipline, isn't it interesting? And he, and he rebuked the church of Corinth for their, their failure to, to act in a manner that was righteous before the Lord concerning the sin that was amongst the assembly and other things. And then in 2 Corinthians, when he writes, he, he talks about how he, you know, for a moment there he thought, oh gosh, I was so hard in that letter, that letter, you know, I really went hard at him. But then he says, for a moment, I regretted it, but then I, I realized there's no need. There was no regret because he says these words. He says, for godly sorrow, the, the sorrow of the world leads to death, but godly sorrow, leads to repentance, which leads to salvation and leads to life. And then he says these words in, uh, in, verse, um, in verse 10 and 11. In 2 Corinthians verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, notice the words that he will use. It'll, I was going to read it from there. Ah, Okay, verse 12, or 10. Okay, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you were sorrowed in a godly manner. What, in other words, they were humbled, right? What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. And what vehement desire, what zeal vindication, in all these things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In other words, they were humbled before God and the result of the rebuke and the result of being disciplined and corrected, it brought about a fresh fear of God in their lives. He says, what fear it produced. And he's speaking of it in a positive way, in a good way. And the fear of God is restored as it should be in our hearts. And this is the deep reverence. This is the manner in which we should live and we should conduct ourselves before the Lord. And again, this is reiterated. Uh, bear with me, but I think it's important that we will just turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 
25 because it talks about hearing the heavenly voice. Him who speaks, uh, not now from him who spoke on Sinai, but he who speaks from Zion. And uh, it, it says that um, uh, in verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we have received a, uh, are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And so again, we are, we are being exhorted in a, in a manner that is related to reverence and godly fear, which brings us back to our text in Psalm 25. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Who is the man who fears the Lord? And the question we must ask ourselves, is the fear of God in my heart? Is it as it should be? Or am I walking and living in a manner that is compromising, that is destitute of the fear of God in my life? So then let us come to uh, uh, repentance and let us come and have the fear of God fresh in our hearts this morning. So it says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Verse 12, him shall he teach in the way in which he chooses. Him will he teach. Now notice it says here, he himself shall dwell in prosperity. Now in some translations it will say he himself will dwell at ease. Prosperity, ease, it's the same. And if you go to the Hebrew, it's actually the same word, goodness. He will dwell in the goodness of God. And the goodness of God is that which prospers us. The goodness of God is that which brings peace and ease into our lives and that we are at rest in the Lord. The, and so the fear of the Lord makes way <clears throat> for the Lord uh, to, and for us to dwell in his goodness. We are lodged in the goodness of God. And as we abide in his goodness, as we live in his goodness, there lies our victory, amen. There lies our contentment. There lies for us uh, all the provisions that we require. And it's there that we dwell. In other words, we live in the goodness of God. We will dwell in prosperity. We will have his blessing. We will have a sense of his approval, of his pleasure. In our lives, because we're walking in humility, we're walking in the fear of the Lord. And so therefore there is honour, there is life, there are riches. And this is exactly the riches that David's highlighting here. And we dwell in his goodness. Remember uh, Moses in, in Exodus 33, as he's journeying along and he says to God, God, unless your presence comes with us, we're not going anywhere. And so, and, and so he's asking for the assurance of God's presence, which is what we have as Christians. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? And then uh, uh, Moses makes a special request. He says, please, that's the word he uses, please show me your glory. And God responds to Moses and he says, no one can see my face and live. In other words, uh, and he says, but he says, I will make he says, uh, I will turn my back and I will make all my goodness pass before you. 
And then we know that the Bible says uh, that God puts him in the cleft of the rock and then the, uh, 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 his face shall not be seen, but the glory of God, the goodness of God, everything that God is passes before Moses. And so we know that the, the typology that's associated with that, the cleft of the rock, is being, Moses puts him into the, uh, God puts Moses into the cleft of the rock in which we have been put into Christ, amen? And in Christ, we have a glimpse of his glory. And so, and in doing so, we, are, uh, we, we have his presence with us, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, and more than that, we get to experience and observe and live in the goodness of God. We get to dwell in the land, amen, as it says, because this is again what is being emphasized. Look at the verse, um, verse 13. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth, or his seed shall inherit the earth. Now, there's something, again, that I want us to see here, again, typologically, as we configuratively of Christ. Because we know to Israel, it, it, there's a promise that relates to the promised land, the land of Canaan, and their inheritance that they will receive as part of God's plan and future glory for Israel. But you see, outside of the natural, there is a spiritual truth that's being communicated here to you and I. And we find this, that then his descendants shall inherit the earth. We're not, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses want to inherit the earth. I don't want to inherit the earth in that sense, amen, because we have inherited, in, in the symbolic sense, uh, we have inherited Christ. Because, you see, the Canaan of the New Testament, the promised land of the New Testament is Christ himself. And so, remember in Galatians chapter 4, uh, in speaking, uh, Paul writes and he says that the seed is Christ. And that we are, uh, uh, in actual fact, let me turn to it so I can read it specifically in verse 29. It says, for you are Christ's, let me get it exactly, Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. Okay. Not, what is it? Sorry, chapter 3, isn't it? Chapter 3. I put chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. See, in verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. That seed is, uh, uh, is uh, in a sense... It's not uh, Israel after the flesh uh, here. It's speaking specifically, as Paul says, uh, to your seed who is Christ. Christ is the seed. And in verse 29, we are told, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. In other words, we are descendants of, of Abraham according to faith, uh, and we are now grafted into um, the, uh, the vine, so to speak, and we are partakers of the divine nature, as the scripture tells us, and also, we are the seed, because we, we are in Christ Jesus. So we are identified with Christ, Christ in us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so therefore, for us, the spiritual Canaan, amen, uh, is, and the promised land is Christ himself. 
And so when, when the scripture says that uh, in verse 13, and his descendants or his seed shall inherit the earth, we, it is symbolic us of our full inheritance in Christ Jesus and for the Christian it's symbolic of us living and walking in the fullness of the Spirit. Because it's when we live in that manner that we are, we are walking in the fullness of God. And, so, and, so, and we are partakers of His goodness in a continual abiding sense as the Scripture would reveal to us. And so we see this, is his, this dwelling in the land, this dwelling and feeding on his faithfulness, this dwelling in Christ is something that is precious. It is something that is an inheritance of us as believers. And note the characteristics that make it, that enable us to uh, appropriate its fullness, humility and fear. You see, if we lack those qualities this morning, then we become wilderness dwellers, so to speak. And we're just, we're not entering into, we're failing to take full possession of that which is ours in Christ. But when we are hum walking humbly before God, when we are, uh, uh, are walking in the fear of the Lord, then we are abiding in his fullness and in his blessing. And we, and his soul will dwell in prosperity. We dwell in the goodness of God. We live in the goodness of God. And we inherit the earth or in this case we inherit the fullness of the blessing of Christ in Jesus amen now there's more that I want to touch on and I'm going to go to verse 14 when we come around the word next but I pray that so far we are getting a glimpse of something here that in this psalm that David is making clear to us that the Lord is speaking to us and it becomes more glorious as we will consider later, verse 14 onwards. But uh, um, like I said, this psalm, God spoke to me in my own walk and it was such a special, special psalm that has uh, guided me even to this day and still continues. It's not like it's completed. But I pray that your eyes would be open and you would experience his fullness and dwell in the land as well. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for the fact that good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, you teach sinners in the way and the humble you guide. And Lord, as David himself prayed, for your goodness sake, O oh Lord, and so that it's, it's on account, our plea is not because of who we are, but because of who you are. We are sinners. We don't deserve anything, Lord. But we, when we understand who you are, and for your sake, that we are partakers of this, your goodness and your grace and mercy and truth, and to have you, Lord, to guide us and to teach us and to bless us in such abundance with the salvation and the promises and the inheritance that is already ours and that which will, will come and that which we will inherit in glory. We're so thankful, Lord. And in light of that, God, I pray that we would understand what it is to walk in humility and in the fear of the Lord. Teach us, O oh God, I pray in Jesus' name.